invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We are moving into chapter 3 in this letter, and in some respects, chapter 3 is the hinge on which everything in the earlier chapters and the two subsequent chapters um, turns. It, It is sort of the centerpiece of this great letter, and if you have not been with us throughout, this letter is very simply a, uh, a theological explanation of the greatness of God's grace in Christ. Um, what is grace? Why is it so important? How does it come to us? Why should we see our need for it? And, and what is the right response to it? And, and Paul there in chapter 1 says that God does everything that he does in Christ to save us from our sin, and he does it to the praise of the glory of his grace. The Lord wants us to praise him for the glory of his grace. And so we are picking up now in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 13 this morning. And as always, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Now, Paul, who you know is the author of this letter, and who is writing this letter from a prison, arguably, most probably in Rome at this time, for preaching the gospel. He is in prison, and he is writing this letter to a congregation he has planted, and yet many of whom he has never met. This church has grown over the years. Paul has been absent from them. Many of them would be new to him, and yet the great burden of his heart, even while he sits in chains for the gospel, is to explain the unsearchable riches of Christ to a people he has never met, to build them up and to give them more understanding about what they have in the Lord Jesus. And so now he writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, 
In a very rare BBC interview with uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who you have heard me quote many times in this pulpit over the last year and a half, uh, he was a Welsh doctor and he was an assistant to the Queen's physician, and he was on trajectory to be one of the most notable doctors in all of the United Kingdom. And yet the Lord got a hold of Martin Lloyd-Jones' heart in a very powerful way in the 1920s and called him into gospel ministry. And as Lloyd-Jones had left uh, a very uh, potentially lucrative career as a doctor in the UK to engage in full-time gospel ministry, and as the Lord called him to pastor and have a very influential pastorate throughout all of England in the 20th century. So much so, I posted a picture you may have seen online not long ago where Lloyd-Jones had the opportunity of meeting the Queen, and she had great respect for his ministry. She, his his, his uh, preaching had a very far impact and wide impact not only in England, but here even in the States and throughout the world. And in this very rare interview in which this BBC reporter asked him um, numerous questions about his life and ministry, uh, she at one point said to him, you have given up so much. She said, you have given up so much. You gave up this lucrative career as uh, someone that was going to be one of the foremost doctors in England. And, and what is it like to have forfeited all of that to do what you do now. And Lloyd-Jones famously said to her, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. Now that now a very famous sentiment, really captures so much of what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 3. Back in chapter 1, the Apostle has set out God's eternal plan to redeem a people through Christ. In chapter 2, he has told us how that redemption has come to bear in the lives of God's people, how it becomes effective in the lives of those who by nature are dead in sins and trespasses. And now here in chapter 3, Paul is going to carry on the subject of God's grace, and he's going to talk about how God has appointed the preaching of the gospel to be the central means by which the mystery of God's grace spreads to the nations, how that message is taken out to all the nations of the earth, and, and Paul will count it the greatest privilege of his life to lose everything, to gain everything, to be called by God's grace to be a minister of the mystery of grace. Before I look at this, I want to read you one more brief quote by Lloyd-Jones in his famous uh, Westminster Seminary lectures in the 1960s, uh, Preaching and Preachers. Lloyd-Jones says at one point, the work of preaching is the highest and greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. If you want something in addition to that, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Um, We don't want to underestimate the importance of God appointing the preaching of the gospel to be the means by which his grace becomes operative among the men and women and boys and girls of the nations. 
And Paul understands this. And so this morning, I want us to consider three things as we look at these 13 verses together. First, I want us to consider the minister of the mystery of grace, the minister of the mystery of grace. Then I want us to consider the message of the mystery of grace. And then we'll look at the manifestation of the mystery of grace, the minister, the message, and the manifestation of the mystery of grace. Well, notice how Paul begins this section as he talks about gospel ministry and and himself as one that God had uniquely called to use in his service and the way of proclaiming the gospel among the nations. Notice this, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, Paul's going to do something very interesting here. Uh, He is not going to mention his imprisonment in Rome. He is going to tell them the way I think about myself, the chief way I identify myself in the role in which God has given me, is that I am a prisoner for you. Isn't that interesting? Paul is drawing off of his present circumstances, and instead of bemoaning them, instead of complaining about them, instead of asking, why, Lord? Why me? Why am I in chains? He uses it as the most apropos illustration for his commitment to carry the gospel to the nations. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I want to say something this morning for the children here because I remember as a boy growing up in churches like this and every time the minister mentioned Gentiles, I, I didn't even know what he was talking about. Gentiles. Very simply, in the, in the Greek, it's the word ethnos and a form of that, which we get the word ethnicity from. And it would be best translated the nations. Paul's very simply saying everything outside of Israel, Old Covenant Israel, are the nations. And God has given me a ministry to proclaim the mysterious grace that he has now revealed in Christ to every creature in every nation I can go to. And we see that, don't we, in the book of Acts. You see the apostle going nation to nation to nation to nation, even places where God stops him going, to Asia at times. And his heart's desire at the end of his ministry is that he could make it to Spain with the gospel. Paul wants to take the gospel everywhere. Paul embodies in himself, by the way, one who is fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave the disciples before he ascended into heaven. Remember, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, making disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go into all the nations. Paul sees this as an enormous privilege. Paul is willing to be imprisoned for this mission. He counts it as the highest privilege he could have. Um, I've mentioned to you two of my favorite figures in church history are Andrew and Horatius Bonar, and the Bonar brothers were used greatly by God, but Horatio was, was used more than his brother in their day, and, and their friend Robert Murray McShane was used more than Andrew Bernard. And as he wrestled with his own usefulness as a minister, he wrote in his diary once, it is amazing. It is amazing that the Lord has spared me and used me at all. It is amazing that the Lord has spared me and used me at all. And, and that is what Paul is saying here. Notice, 
Let's go down to verse 8, because Paul picks up here. He, he kind of gets interrupted in his own thought in this section. It's very bad grammar, but it's very wonderful theology. He starts a sentence. He gets sidetracked. It's called an anakaluthon. I know you don't care, but there's a technical term. He gets sidetracked. He comes back to it. And back in verse 7, notice of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul didn't take this to himself. He didn't think he had anything in himself to, to enable him to enter in on this great privilege of proclaiming the gospel. In fact, Paul is going to say he is the most unlikely person, the most unlikely candidate to be put in this position by God. Notice this. He says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, notice verse 8, to me, who am the very least of all the saints. It would be the word in the Greek, if we translate it into English, would be lestis. There is no word. One commentator says Paul murders language here. He's the lestis of the least of all the saints. He is less than the least. That's how he thinks about himself, the most undeserving. This grace was given to preach Christ among the nations. Um. This is awesome. Eric Alexander says, when God is seeking to do a peculiar thing in the world, he often picks the most unlikely man to do it. When God is seeking to do a peculiar thing in the world, he often picks the most unlikely man to do it. I, I feel that about myself. Knowing what I was, knowing what I still am at times, um, and, and that's true for you. This is not just about gospel ministers and Christian service. Um, we ought to think ourselves undeserving and grateful for the privilege. Sunday school teachers, what a, what a noble ministry to God's people in the church. Bible study leaders, you know, those that open their homes in hospitality, those that serve to see God's kingdom growing. God, God almost always uses the most unlikely men and women. Alexander goes on to say the greatest barrier, and this is so convicting, the greatest barrier to serving God is not a lack of gifts and graces. It is an inflated sense of self-importance. Now, this is, this is remarkable. The Apostle Paul was not a man that didn't have anything to offer. You read Paul's letters. He was a massive intellect. He knew the scriptures better than any one of us in this room. Paul was a man that, that had enormous gifts and graces, and yet the way he thinks about himself is as the least likely, less than the least of all the saints. In another place, he says he's chief of sinners. At the end of Romans 7, he says, "'A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?' That's how Paul thinks about himself, and that's the key to his usefulness. Don't miss this. The minister of the mysteries of grace is the man or those who serve, the men and women who serve in a variety of capacities in God's church who think the least of themselves, not the most. Now, I was reflecting on this as I prepared for this sermon, and I thought, there are many big talking pastors in this world, and the internet has just amplified them. And if, if the individuals that you listen to do not say the sort of things that the Apostle Paul says here. You should run as far and as fast from them as you can. There are many who stand in pulpits who just want self-adulation and, um, and aggrandizement. 
Paul, Paul's not using false humility. Paul understands at one time he had been a self-righteous Jew. He believed that salvation only came to Jews and it came by works and it, became, it came to them because of what they did and who they were. And he is the most unlikely person God would use to take the gospel to the nations. Think about that. The one who was so zealous for his own nation is now going to all the other nations. That's why Paul understands his undeservedness. Um, I think there's also another sense in which Paul understands what God has given him to such a degree that he is humbled to the dust. He understands that God had given him gifts and graces. And uh, one old Puritan, Thomas Brooks, says, uh, the branches of the tree full of the most sap hang the lowest. That's what's happening with Paul. He, he's not a man that doesn't have anything to offer. He's a man that knows it's all of God's grace. So that when we recognize what God's done, not only in saving us by grace, but by giving us graces for ministry and gifts for ministry, it should humble us that he would do that for us, that he would put us to use, that he would call us to serve him. Um, If every one of us, starting with me, appropriated the mindset of the Apostle Paul in our hearts and in our minds— what would, what would the church look like? It would look like people that were trying to outdo one another in serving one another rather than seeking to be served. Um, when I hear about churches that are divided over uh, schism and division, and I've seen many in my life, I've sadly been in some, um, what, is, what is markedly absent is humility. That's, that's, that's what's missing. That's the one thing missing. Um, when people assert themselves and try to dominate and get their way, it's because they think more highly of themselves than they ought to. But, but when we have this mindset that I'm less than the least of all the saints, I don't deserve to be used. Why would God spare me and use me at all? What that does is that makes me want to bless others, not sit back and complain and grumble and nitpick, but bless that's what Paul's doing. Paul's in prison, and he's thinking about others. Think about that. That's, that's where humility takes him. He's in prison. He's thinking about others. He's thinking, how can I bless them? How can I build them up? How can I encourage them? Um, now, Paul understands that God has given him a very unique message, and I want us to consider here the message of the mystery of grace. Notice he, he uses that word mystery several times, three in the English. They've added it. Um, in, in verse 6 at the beginning, just to make the sen- sentence make sense. Um, now, when we read that word mystery, we ought not think about a mystery as we think about them today. We tend to think about true crime shows and, and murder mysteries, and that's not what this word is carrying. It's carrying the idea of something that was hidden, something that was concealed, but now God is revealed, And Paul is reflecting on the old covenant economy. He's reflecting on everything God did, um, really from the calling of Abraham through Israel's history to this point when now the gospel is going to the nations. And and he's saying that, that God has a mystery, that God has kept something concealed. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't intimations. There were loads of intimations. In fact, when God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And the Psalms talk about the the nations praising God. And Isaiah speaks of 
the gospel going to the coastlands. Anna and I were walking on the beach um, on Kiowa Island yesterday, and I said, "Hun, every time we come to the beach, we should think this is the coastlands that Isaiah was speaking about. There was a time when there was no gospel to this nation, no gospel to the other nations. There were no missionaries carrying the message of Christ crucified and risen anywhere. I know, I said last week, there was Nineveh. There were few exceptions. But, but by and large, it was a hidden mystery. God had planned this from all eternity. This was his plan. It's, by the way, it's all plan A. Israel wasn't plan A. The new covenant plan B, it's all plan A. But God had chosen to conceal it for a time. And Paul understands that the really great thing is that there is no more concealing this gospel. That God now wants it preached indiscriminately to everyone, to every nation under heaven. I remember someone asking one of my professors in seminary, who had himself been a missionary for many years in, um, I believe, Eritrea, it's one African nation, and, and someone said, How should we think about getting the gospel to the Islamic nations? And I'll never forget my professor said, you know, when you look at the Apostle Paul go into foreign lands that have never heard the gospel, he boldly proclaims the triune God as God. He boldly proclaims Christ. He calls men to trust in him. And in fact, Paul says in Acts 17, my professor said that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. You see, this gospel is, is for every single person in every single nation. Um, Paul will say in Romans 10, how can they call on him of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? And yet Paul is focused on the message. Notice this. Notice verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm going to recommend a book to you this morning. It's by that Puritan Thomas Brooks, and it's called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. It would be one of the most important books you could spend time in. It's an exposition of this passage, um, but, but Brooks goes on in there to unpack what does Paul mean by the riches of Christ and goes to great length to explain that there's always more. Think about this. It's unsearchable. It's as if Paul is looking at Jesus and, and he is seeing all the, the, all the wisdom of God in Christ, all the redemption in Christ, all the love of Christ, all of the sacrifice of Christ, all of the mediation of Christ, all of the sufficiency of Christ. And, and he's saying, essentially, I can see the depths, but I cannot see a bottom. That's what he's saying here. I can see there are depths, but I cannot see a bottom. You see, when you get to that place and you understand that there's always more depths to the riches of Jesus Christ, you, you never get bored of hearing about Christ. You always want to hear more. Paul says, I get to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice that when he wraps up that great prayer at the end of chapter 3, notice verse 19, he prays that God's people would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
Look back in verse 18, that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth. That, that there is immeasurable riches of grace in Jesus. Brooks says this in that book I just recommended. He says, The riches of Christ are of all things the most useful to poor souls. When the soul is under the guilt of sin, nothing relieves it like the riches of Christ. When the soul is surrounded with temptations, nothing strengthens it like the riches of Christ. When the soul is mourning under afflictions, nothing comforts it like the riches of Christ. When all earthly good fails, nothing makes a Christian sing caraway like the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ sweeten all other riches that men enjoy. Isn't that beautiful? When the soul's weighed down with guilt, I need the riches of Christ. When I'm tempted, I need the riches of Christ. When I'm afflicted, I need the riches of Christ. When times are good, I need the riches of Christ. When times are hard, I need Christ and the unsearchable riches that are in him. Now, tangibly, I would just remind you, if you want a tangible consideration of what those riches are, you go back to chapter 1 and you read verses 3 through 14 again, all of those spiritual blessings we have in him. Paul is unpacking the riches there. And he's saying, meditate on these things, think on these things, set your mind on these things. Um, I love that quote by McShane, and you've heard it many times, for every, for every one look within, and all I'm going to see is sin and guilt and evil by nature. For every one look within, take ten looks to Christ. Fix your eyes, the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. See him nailed to the tree. See the crown of thorns pressed on his brow. See his hands and feet pierced. See his side pierced for your sins. See the blood and the water flowing out of him. Hear him crying out because he took the wrath we deserve. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to those gracious words, the riches of grace coming off of his lips on the cross. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. These are all part of the riches of Christ. Start to realize afresh that everything we have, everything we are, it's all in union with him. It's all in him. It's all what he has done. It's nothing that I've done. Paul here is is modeling for us that he understands that everything is in Christ and what a privilege it is to tell others about Christ. What a privilege. Well, I want us to consider also, very briefly, the manifestation of the mystery of grace. We've considered the minister and the message. I want us to consider the manifestation of the mystery of grace. And notice this, that Paul says there in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone which was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now listen to this, verse 10. Focus on this. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying right now, you are being watched. It's not meant to be creepy. But right now, there are onlookers, there are unfallen angels, 
Peter tells us that, that the things of the salvation Christ has accomplished for undeserving, hell-deserving sinners like you and me are the things that angels long to look into. Uh, the old Bible translator, J, um, uh, Philpot, translates uh, that verse, the angels are standing on tiptoe, looking down at what God's doing in the lives of his people through the redemption he has wrought for them in Christ. And what that means is right now, God is showing off the grace that he is manifesting in your life in Christ. He is showing it off to the angels who themselves don't know what it is to be redeemed. Remember, there is no salvation for the fallen angels. There is no salvation. He does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. He gives aid to the elect. He helps those that he has chosen in Christ and sent the Son to die for. And so God is astonishing principalities and powers in the heavenly places by showing them what he is doing in your life together with his people in the church. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. That means that the redemption of just one saint is enough to astonish the entire host of heaven with what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God. How could God take someone like him or her, someone that was lost in so much depravity, someone that hated God and hated others, and make them a beloved son or daughter, to make them a saint and a member of his household? How could, how could God do that? And, and, and through the preaching of the gospel and through what's happening, the angels are seeing that what Christ has done is... is is beyond marvelous. It's multifaceted. That's what Paul says, the multivariegated wisdom of God. Um, man, if we really understood the reality of this, how that would impact the joy with which we came together as the church, the zeal with which we sought to live in Christian love, harmony, and service together as the church, and, and the praise that we would give to God, that he has done that for people like us who didn't deserve it, and, and that he would have been just to let us perish. Um, absolutely amazing. This mystery is manifest in God showing off his wisdom to the angels. That means that if you are truly in Christ by faith, if you have been regenerated, if you're united to the Lord Jesus, if you're trusting in him, that means that all of the circumstances of your life that maybe distract you or weigh you down or consume you are, are only tiny little pieces of what God's doing, and that the totality, totality of your redeemed life is meant, at least in part, for God to astonish the host of heaven. Isn't that awesome? Um, remember many years ago, there was a cartoon that was being spread about on the internet, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, and it, it was a picture of some Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum in Rome, and it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
And, and while it is funny to a degree, it's also true. God loves you. Christ loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, so much so that Paul can tell them in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul understands that even where he is in prison for the gospel is part of God's plan in showing off his manifold wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? I've mentioned her many times, Johnny Erickson Tata. No one understands this like her until you suffer like her. Until you see her responses, she is a woman that gets this. And when I start to complain about what I don't have or what I think I should have or my situation in life or what other people have that I don't have or why can't I have more of this, when they get more of this, we've forgotten that every single thing God has meted out to us, he has done according to his perfect wisdom And that if he's redeemed us in Christ, he is using all of it to show that wisdom off to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's amazing. That's amazing. That, That should be transformative for us. Um I wish I could I wish I could unpack this more for you. And as we come to the supper. You know, we are meant to come and we are meant to experience more of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's one reason why God has given us the supper. We're to understand more of God's manifold wisdom in our life and redeeming us. We're to understand more of, of our undeservedness. We're to understand more of what God has done for us because 99% of us, if not 100, are Gentiles by nature. And undeserving to hear this mystery. And yet, God has chosen to make it known to us. So I want to encourage you as we close this morning, first I want to, I want to ask you, when you think about yourself and your, your service in the church, um, do you think about yourself like Paul did? Do you think, you know, I don't deserve to serve in any capacity for the sake of the gospel? Do you think, you know, it's, it's amazing that God would use me? That's, that's, that's what Paul would have us appropriate. Why would God use me rather than I should be used more, I should be seen more, I should be heard more? Um, I want to encourage you this morning to, to take that mindset up, um, to know that God often picks the most unlikely man or woman to accomplish his peculiar works in the world. And then I want us to meditate this morning on the unsearchable riches of Christ. Are we eager to delve deep, to go down as far as we can, to be able to say with Paul, you know, I see that there are depths, but I cannot find the bottom. God wants you to dive in to the unsearchable riches of Jesus in Scripture, to meditate much on him, to know there's always more depths there. And then I want to ask you if you are acknowledging this morning that what is happening here and what's happening in our lives as redeemed individuals is that God is showing off his grace and his wisdom right now to beings that are more powerful than us, but who themselves will never know the redeeming grace and mercy of God in their own experience. That's pretty awesome. Right now, the angels are praising God for what he's doing in your life and my life. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. 
Father in heaven, we know that there is always more for us to be reminded of. We thank you for what you have reminded us of this morning. We thank you, our God, for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for um, the mystery of your grace. We thank you that you would use men and women like us to be servants in your church. We thank you that you call us to know more of the unsearchable riches of Christ and to carry them out to the nations. And we thank you, our God, that you are displaying your multivariegated wisdom before the watching eyes of principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Our God, would you press these truths into us? We pray that you would change us by them. We pray that you would cause them to overflow in us with great joy and thankfulness and praise to you for the greatness of the mystery of that grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.